0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Lord Joel Joffe believes there's an urgent need to change the law on assisted dying and will argue in his lecture that assisted dying and palliative care are essential and complementary aspects of care for people suffering from painful, incurable diseases. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Glynis Brakewell, I'm the Vice Chancellor of the University. And I want to welcome you all here this evening. It's nice to have such a varied audience for this lecture. I should say that the university has decided to mount a new series of public lectures dealing with the pressing social and technological debates of our times. Research can change people's lives and research can change the world. At the University of Bath, we believe that research in universities should have an impact and should make a difference. We therefore not only seek to promote scientific excellence, but also to use research to address important topics in the world today. This new lecture series, seminars and discussions, will address current major global issues and challenges that resonate with key areas of our research and scholarship. It's fitting that we should inaugurate this series with a lecture by one of our honorary doctorates and that it should be on a debate about which our university has considerable research expertise, symbolised by our Centre for the Study of Death and Dying. It's an honour for me to introduce our speaker, Lord Joel Joffe. He is one of those rare people who has truly devoted his life to the protection of human rights and the promotion of social welfare. Having been told at the age of 13 that he was a rebel, he has lived up to that charge by addressing issues of social injustice wherever they manifested themselves. From 1958 until 1965, he was a human rights lawyer in South Africa, appearing for the defense in a number of major trials, which included representing Nelson Mandela in the Rivonia trial between 63 and 64, when 10 leaders of the uh, the African National Congress were tried for activities um, designed to ferment violent revolution. 1965, he settled in the United Kingdom and, became a, and began a career in the financial services industry here. Lord Joffe subsequently co-founded the financial services company Allied Dunbar, of which he was a founder director, joint managing director, and finally deputy chairman from 71 until 91. In keeping with his concern for justice and social welfare, he was a founding trustee and then chair of the Allied Dunbar Charitable Trust and a member of the steering committee which created the Percent Club, both leading organisations that encouraged corporate social responsibility at a time when this was not fashionable for large commercial organisations. Lord Joffe's concern with, with human rights and international development is, in, is reflected in his work with Oxfam, and between 1979 and 2001, he was a trustee, honorary treasurer, chair of the executive committee, and then chair of Oxfam. Lord Joffe has also worked extensively within the voluntary sector in the UK, including acting as a, a trustee of the Smith Institute, an independent think tank which undertakes research and education on the changing relationship between social values and economic imperatives. Between 1997 and 99, he was also a member of the Royal Commission for the Care of the Elderly. Lord Joffe's enormous contribution to human rights and social welfare was formally recognised in 1999 when he was awarded the CBE and made a life peer in 2000 being raised to the peerage as Baron Joffe of Liddington in the county of Wiltshire. Lord Joffe's name has been for the last few years very much in the public arena because in February 2003, as a crossbench peer in the House of Lords, he proposed a private member's bill to legalise physician-assisted dying. His views... He views this as a human rights issue, and the continued campaign is one close to his heart. It is on this issue that he will be addressing us today. It's very timely, since on the 23rd of September 2009, the Director of Public Prosecutions, Keir Starmer, called for public participation in a 12-week consultation on factors that should be taken into account when considering whether prosecutions will be brought against those who assist another to take their own life. I hope you will join me in welcoming Lord Joffe as he presents this lecture.
1: (coughs) Thank you, you, Vice-Chancellor, for that very generous introduction. It actually brought to mind the response of a previous Archbishop of Canterbury to a similar complimentary introduction, who commented that when he retired that night, he would offer up two prayers asking for forgiveness. The first would be for his introducer, who had so exaggerated his accomplishments. <laughs> the second, for himself, for so enjoying listening to them. <laughs> so, Glynis, I will, be, I, I will be praying for you tonight. <laughs> I'm particularly pleased that I have the opportunity, before my retirement, to talk at the university from which I was privileged to receive an honorary doctorate three years ago, and of which I am very proud. My talk this evening is about the subject which has dominated my working life for the last six years. And as this is likely to be my last public talk, I accordingly have a lot to say. So I feel I should warn you in advance that I will speak for about one hour, which seems a long time to me, and may seem even longer to you. <laughs> and if any of you thought, well, what was this chap bringing in a glass of of uh, brandy into this lecture lecture room? The reason is I've got a bad cold, and if my vo- this is here for your benefit, because if I start coughing, <laughs> it will be all over the place. <coughs> I. I begin by declaring my interest as patron of, a dig- of Dignity and Dying, the main organisation in England and Wales campaigning for the decriminalisation of assisted dying. I would add that they may not agree with everything I say tonight, nor the way I say it. There are few, if any, subjects more controversial than assisted dying. The debate on the issue goes back as far as Socrates in ancient Greece, And philosophers then, and through the centuries, have had opposing views, some in favour, some against, and there's no inexorable logic which supports either view. The decision to support or oppose a sister dying is surely a personal one, influenced by factors such as faith or non-faith, views on personal autonomy, on patient choice, and on the likely effects upon society as a whole of either choice, and it is therefore understandable that individuals hold conflicting personal views. In presenting my own views in favour, I will also, to the best of my ability, seek to set out some of the concerns of the opponents of assisted dying. There are many misconceptions about assisted dying, arising either through misunderstanding or misrepresentation. So at the outset, I would like to emphasize that my proposals for assisted dying are a very limited application. Assisted dying will be an additional end-of-life option only available to terminally ill patients for whom palliative care is not the solution to their suffering. It is impossible to predict how many terminally ill patients will wish to avail themselves of such an option but based on the experience in Oregon sister dying has been lawful for over 10 years, it would be in the order of about 900 deaths each year out of 500,000 deaths in England and Wales. But although the number of additional deaths will be small, many people, terminally ill or not, will benefit from knowing that when they are faced with the prospect of dying, they will have this further end-of-life option available if their suffering gets out of control and they wish to end their suffering by ending their lives. I think it may be helpful to you if I clarify the terminology I will use in this talk, as often the same words and terms have different meanings to different people, and some have connotations which create totally unjustified alarm when they are used. And such a word is euthanasia. In ancient Greece it meant a good death and referred to the practice of ending life in a painless banner. However, the Nazi regime in the 1930s cynically labelled their programme of murdering disabled pa- people as the euthanasia programme and under it exterminated hundreds of thousands of disabled people. The result was that the word euthanasia has acquired a connotation in the minds of many as something intrinsically evil rather than good. Even the term voluntary euthanasia, still has something of the same adverse connotation to some. It is disturbing that some opponents of assisted dying have sought to use this false connotation to create an atmosphere of fear and alarm in relation to assisted dying. For example, an article in April 2006 in the Catholic Times opposing assisted dying by a certain father, Marsden, attached a full page of photographs of 12 children murdered in Nazi-era medical experiments. This demonstrates the levels to which some zealots will descend in the passion of their opposition to assisted dying. I also prefer to use the term assisted dying rather than assisted suicide, although they both accurately describe a person ending his or her own life. However, the word suicide conveys an inference of a person impulsively ending his or her life as a result of an emotional or mental disturbance, whereas assisted dying relates to an informed decision by a mentally competent person. So I think, for a start, I will just uh, define specifically some of the terminology that I use Uh, (coughs) in in this talk. I'm very bad with slides, but the technology is so wonderful in this place that even i got it right. In this talk, the dying means a doctor at the informed and freely made request of a mentally competent, terminally ill adult patient who is suffering unbearably prescribing but not administering lethal medication in order to assist the patient to end his or her life. Where the patient cannot orally ingest the medication, the doctor can prescribe some other means of self administration. (coughs) Voluntary euthanasia means a doctor administering a lethal injection to a patient in response to the patient's request to end his or her life. (coughs) And the key difference between assisted dying and voluntary euthanasia is that in assisted dying, it is the patient who self administers the medication. Whereas involuntary euthanasia, it is a doctor who directly ends the patient's life with an injection. Now, palliative care is an approach to medical care that aims to improve the quality of life of patients and, and, their, fam- and their families facing life-threatening illness through the assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychosocial, and spiritual. And patients in this talk means terminally ill patients only. Now, it should be noted that physical pain can usually, but not always, be controlled. And the other problems in the definition could include breathlessness, difficulty in swallowing, total paralysis, fear of loss of control, loss of independence, and no quality of life. Moving from definitions, I thought, as some of you might not be uh, very familiar with the subject, I'd give you a bit of background. In relation to the current debate on assisted dying, it really did start in 2003 when I introduced the patient assisted dying bill as a private member's bill in the House of Lords. After a debate on that bill, the Lords referred the issue to a select committee which was set up in the Lords at the end of 2004. And I'll refer to that committee in future as the 2005 Select Committee. It reported uh, it was there to consider an amended bill, which I had introduced, which was similar to the previous bill, but more limited in its application in that it no longer included voluntary euthanasia. The committee took oral evidence from more than 100 experts and visited the Netherlands, Oregon, and Switzerland, in all of which countries assisted dying was lawful, and they received subwritten submissions from many more. It reported in April 2005, and although no vote was taken, I ascertained that seven of the 13 members of the committee supported assisted dying, and six opposed it, so it was very evenly balanced. In November 2005, in the light of that report, I introduced my fourth bill, titled The Assisted Dying for the Terminally Ill Bill, which I again talk to, uh, refer to as the 2005 bill. Desperate to avoid a detailed debate on the bill's provisions, the bill's opponents broke a long-standing House of Lords tradition never to oppose a private member's bill at a second reading, and they achieved this through a cunning and last-minute amendment, and on 12 May 2006, the bill was defeated by 60% to 40%. Moving on a couple of years, in June of this year, Lord Falconer. The former Lord Chancellor tabled an amendment to the Coroner's Justice Bill in the Lords, the aim of which was to bring about a limited change in the law, which would allow families and friends to assist and accompany their loved ones who were travelling to countries where it was lawful to obtain assistance to end their lives. This bill was defeated by a relatively small majority of 194 votes to 141. And the most recent development in the debate, which relates to the interpretation of the law, rather than a change in the law, emerged from a judgment by the law lords in the Debbie Purdy's case delivered in July this year. This judgment required the Director of Public Prosecutions to publish the factors he would take account of when deciding whether to give consent to the prosecution of a person for the offense of assisting another to commit suicide. The Director of Public Prosecutions generally has has with its statute uh, uh, provides, has the right not to proceed with, pro- with uh, prosecutions, even though it appears that the person charged is guilty, uh, is guilty of a crime, if, he ju- if the director considers it not in the public interest. And, this, uh, and following upon this decision of the law lords, the director of public prosecutions last month published his interim policy, setting out the factors he would take into account. My initial view is that the policy provides careful and skillful guidance, which I believe accords with the views of the overwhelming majority of the public who would want compassionate behavior to be dealt with differently (coughs) from malicious behavior. However, the Director of Public Prosecutions cannot change the law which makes assisted dying a criminal offense, nor will his policy be of help to most patients who want the option of assisted dying. What is still needed to provide this option is a change in the law. So my approach to assisted dying is not based on a particular philosophy or morality, but rather on pragmatism and compassion. It is broadly that where people are suffering unbearably, everything possible must be done to alleviate that suffering. If palliative care cannot, for whatever reason alleviate suffering for some patients, I believe an alternative must be sought if this is what the patient requests and the only alternative appears to be assisted dying. Accordingly, God, regard assisted dying a, as a good rather than a harm and support it, subject to stringent safeguards to protect potentially vulnerable members of society. My aim, therefore, is to seek a change in the law to allow assisted dying as a further end of life option in addition to those which already exist. In seeking to change the law, I'm encouraged by the experience in other countries and regions where assisted dying is lawful, which includes the Netherlands, Belgium, Oregon, Switzerland, Luxembourg, and most recently, Washington. There are presently four end-of-life options. The first, and most important, is quality palliative care. Where it is available, it is the preferred option for the overwhelming majority of patients as it combines their will and determination to live to the very end with control of their physical pain and to receive psychosocial and spiritual care where they feel it will help them. The modern hospice movement, which is a key part of palliative care, was founded by Dame Cicely Saunders in the UK and our centres of excellence in palliative care are regarded as the best or amongst the best in the world. And certainly based on what I have seen at St Christopher's Hospices in London and the Prospect Hospice in Swindon where I live, they are models of dedicated and loving care. However such holistic and high quality care, palliative care is not available to many terminally ill people in England and Wales. And those particularly neglected are patients who are suffering from cam- cancer and the very elderly. And I was very much helped in looking at the position of the, of the elderly by the work of Professor Malcolm Johnson, who is in the, at uh, Bath University, who has written some very, st- very challenging articles on that care <coughs> and the need for it to be developed much more effectively. Despite the excellence of UK palliative care, it is not the solution for a small but significant minority of patients. That such patients exist is now widely accepted, although palliative care professionals have in the past been reluctant to concede this. The, the Palliative Care Council is strongly opposed to assisted dying. They appear to think that they have a monopoly of helping patients to die with dignity and as a profession seem determined to protect this monopoly and their current model of practice. In a profession which does such fine work and takes itself very, very seriously, there's generally a reluctance to even consider new and different models and approaches. Unusually, a leading palliative care consultant, Dr. Fiona Randall, Together with Professor Downey, in a book published in 2006, suggested that the rhetoric in palliative care was often not matched by the practice and suggested a different and more realistic definition and model which would limit specialist palliative care to patients whose symptoms could not be controlled in conventional end of life settings. I should add that both authors, unfortunately, from my perspective, are opposed to assisted dying. It is also interesting to observe that in Belgium, well-developed palliative care is distributed evenly across the whole country under a comprehensive organizational framework for palliative care, placing emphasis on the integration of palliative care in general health care. End-of-life decisions and palliative care do not seem incompatible in Belgium, but if anything, seem to reinforce each other. And this approach is very different from the rigid approach of opposition by the palliative care profession in the UK. I'll deal briefly with the life option two, which is simply that under the law and under patient choice, all patients have the right to refuse further life-saving medical treatment, even if the consequence is that they die sooner than they otherwise would, or for that matter, even though it might be a very unwise decision... That is what personal autonomy is about. The third option is that patients have the right to starve themselves to death by either refusing food or water or both, something which actually happens not infrequently perhaps particularly with elderly people. And this takes great courage and determination because it can take several weeks to die as the patient withers away and it can be particularly distressing both for the family as well as the patient. And then the fourth end-of-life option is terminal sedation. <coughs> this is where the patient is so heavily sedated that he or she remains unconscious for all or most of the time until they die and accordingly they do not suffer from pain or discomfort. As Professor Seal of Brunel University has found in a survey published this year, this option seems to be becoming more frequently used in England, however, it is not an option which patients can insist upon and depends on the willingness or otherwise of the doctors who care for them, which in turn may be influenced by the doctor's religious or personal beliefs rather than by the wish of the patients themselves and then there is the fifth option which is not here yet an option, and that is that assisted dying should be an op- option five but unfortunately that option is currently not available because our law prohibits it. Now, and the law in question was the Suicide Act of 1961, which provided that it would no longer be a crime to commit suicide, but however, it was a crime punishable by up to 14 years' imprisonment to aid, abet, commit, or procure the suicide of another In the 48 years since that act was passed, some attitudes and values of our society have changed. We now live in a secular society, which while abiding by many of the values of previous societies, allows them to be modified to reflect the values of today's society. Changes include society and or the law now accepting that homosexuality is not a crime, that women can be ordained as priests, that abortion is legal, and as I've already mentioned, that suicide is no longer a crime. And we now have a society where increasing value is based on personal autonomy, which in appropriate cases trumps the important principle of the sanctity of life. Now the law itself has moved in the direction of assisted dying. It is lawful. To refuse life-prolonging treatment, as I've already said. It's lawful to make an advanced decision, a living will to refuse treatment, should mental capacity be lost in the future. Lawful to starve oneself to death, for doctors to withdraw or refuse to provide life-prolonging treatment, which they, and it's the doctors who make that decision, consider futile lawful for doctors to provide doses of morphine to control pain and suffering, which might speed up the death of the patient, that is double effect, which originally in law might have been chargeable as murder, but the courts have interpreted it in favour of both the, pa- the medical profession and the patient. And it is not an offence. Providing your attention is not to end the life of the person, but only to... their suffering. And then it is lawful, and this is the really interesting point from a legal point of view, it is lawful for doctors at the request of the patient to disconnect the patient from life support equipment, which is keeping the patient alive, even though this will lead to the death of the patient. The famous case was the case of Miss B, who was a social worker, crippled, connected to a life-saving equipment and after a number of years she said she wanted to die and the doctor said no, she couldn't. They wouldn't let her and she took them to court and the court decided that it was her right. It was a question of personal autonomy, in that case uh, trumping uh, uh, trumping or taking second place to um, <coughs> uh, 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 to the sanctity of life. And We, are, we had at the moment, do have a bizarre position that if the patient, instead of asking to be taken off the life support equipment, asks the doctor to, preside, to prescribe <coughs> lethal medication for the pre- patient to take if he, she or he wishes, the law requires the doctor to refuse such a request. The result is that under the current law, we have the bizarre position that the law demands that doctors help patients who wish to die, who are connected to life support equipment, denies those who are not so connected the right to ask for assistance to die. And this despite the fact that the very principle which underpins our NHS is patient choice, which because of the law as it stands ends at one of the most important choices that each of us will have when the time comes, which is when and how to die. If you like me cannot see the dividing line between disconnecting a patient from life support equipment and asking the doctor to provide, prescribe a drug for the patient to take, you might think it would be logical for the courts to extend assisted dying to the fifth end of life option. There are some lawyers who believe that this could be achieved through the legal process and it is possible that a future court may decide that is so. However. Until now, our courts have been very clear that while they certainly have sympathy for the predicament of some families or friends who for compassionate reasons had helped or assisted a loved one to die, they have ruled that it is not for the courts to change the law and it is only Parliament who can do that. This is the reason why we who support assisted dying introduced the four bills into the House of Lords to which I referred earlier with a view to changing the law to allow one further end of life option, namely assisted dying for patients who might wish to take advantage of it. the bills were driven by compassion for the unbearable suffering of terminally ill patients whose suffering could be not be solved by quality palliative care if it was available. The 2005 bill incorporated in legal terminology what I've earlier in this talk defined as assisted dying, and provided that terminally ill patients who qualified for assisted dying could apply in writing to their doctors for assistance to die. The bill also specifically exempted doctors who had a conscientious objection to assisted dying from any participation in the processes covered by the bill. The principle underpinning the bill was one of personal autonomy. The human right of all individuals to decide for themselves how to lead their lives, which would include their choice and how and when to die, and this, in other words, is patient choice at the end of life. We were clear that this right must be subject to one limitation, namely, that in making a decision to end their li- own lives, patients must not indirectly harm other vulnerable members of society. And I come now to the safeguards which we proposed in that bill to ensure that vulnerable people were not, were not put at harm. And there was actually an array of 21 interlocking safeguards which included two requests in writing by the patient for a system to die, secret examination by two doctors who should be independent of one another, If either doctor was in doubt about mental capacity there must be referral to a psychiatrist. And a consultation with a palliative care specialist who could explain what palliative care hopefully could do for the patient was also compulsory. And then there was a waiting period of 14 days and self-administration where you have to actually drink the drug itself, which is the best evidence that the patient is acting (coughs) voluntarily. The doctors must satisfy themselves that the patient is terminally ill, is mentally competent, has free and voluntarily, freely and voluntarily made an informed decision after taking account, into account all other end-of-life options and is suffering intolerably. When we introduce a new bill, we will include all these safeguards, and these safeguards are based upon and include all the safeguards contained in the Oregon legislation on assisted dying but as in the 2005 Bill, add even more stringent safeguards, such as a palliative care filter and the requirement for unbearable suffering. And these safeguards will ensure that vulnerable members of society will not be at risk if assisted dying is legalised. The safeguards should also be looked at in the context of the 900 patients each year who are presently unlawfully assisted to die, according to the research of professor seal published this year extrapolating from the oregon average experience over the last 3 years of 18 deaths for each 10,000 deaths in the order of 900 patients are likely to die through assisted dying each year if it becomes lawful as i've already mentioned this is virtually the same number as are presently being unlawfully assisted to die-, die it seems therefore that assisted dying poses no greater risks than already exist to vulnerable members of society. And indeed, the proposed safeguards would provide protection to some patients who might otherwise have been unlawfully assisted to die. So, I, of course, and I'm sure it will come as no surprise to you, can't quite understand how, in the circumstances and against the background which I have. Uh, set out that anyone could oppose assisted dying for compassionate reasons. But the opponents of assisted dying take a different view and have a number of concerns, all of which need to be considered with respect and objectivity. In assessing these concerns, it is important to appreciate without exception, they are based on conjecture rather than fact, as assisted dying has always been unlawful in the UK. Bearing in mind that there can be no supporting evidence of experience in the UK, one would have assumed that in support of their concerns, the opponents would have referred to objective and expert research in countries or regions where assisted dying has been lawful, which would support their concerns. However, very little, if any, such sound research against assisted dying has been forthcoming, presumably because it just does not exist. Instead, the conjecture against it has been presented with great confidence by way of reference to opinions of like-minded individuals in the countries in question who are opposed to assisted to die, often because of the opponent's faith or to their personal experiences or to snippets of newspaper reports. In this regard, I would suggest that the repeated and often strident assertions of conjecture or personal opinions, are not an adequate substitute for solid solid and carefully a- analysed evidence. In contrast to the position of the opponents of a sister dying, there is a considerable body of analytic expert research in Oregon and the Netherlands, and some, but less in Belgium, which demonstrate that the concerns are likely to be unfounded. I will refer to the findings of this research in my responses to these concerns and have prepared a list of references which is available to anyone interested. <coughs> I recognise that it does not follow that experience elsewhere will necessarily be repeated in the UK. However, having regard to the consistency of much of the experience in Oregon, the Netherlands and Belgium and making due allowance for the fact that Oregon differs from the Netherlands and Belgium in only allowing the sister dying and not voluntary euthanasia, this expert objective research is persuas- should be persuasive in assisting, assessing the validity of the concerns raised. In Switzerland, where a sister dying has been lawful since 1942, to assist one someone to die... Uh, it's been lawful since 1942 to assist someone to die, provided that it is not with a selfish motive. There have not, to the best of my knowledge, been any credible concerns, apart from those relating to Dignitas and its director, and Mr. Manelli. some of which concerns I share. However, Mr. Manelli has not done anything which contravenes Swiss law, which has no safeguards other than the absence of a selfish motive. The lesson to be learned from Switzerland is that safeguards such as I have proposed are necessary to protect vulnerable members of society as well as to allow patients who are suffering terribly the option to end their suffering by ending their lives. I now move on to set out my understanding of, which these, of what these concerns are and my responses to them. The first is that vulnerable members of society will be put at risk. This is understandably the most serious of all, and one that requires very careful consideration. Pressure may be put on patients from family members who might wish to see them die earlier because of the strain of looking after them, or because they want to get their hands on the patient's assets, or because the patient might feel a duty to die. This would certainly be a risk if there were no safeguards, and so the efficacy of the safeguards proposed must now be examined. The most effective way of testing the validity of this concern is to look at the actual experience in Oregon, where the law allowing assisted dying has been in force for over ten years, and that is the law on which our proposals are based. In all this time, ten years, there's no credible evidence of any vulnerable patient being unlawfully assisted to die, and only one area where the detailed provisions of the law has probably not been strictly followed. This in itself is remarkable, bearing in mind that passionate opponents of assisted dying in Oregon still watch closely for any such evidence. That there there has been no abuse of vulnerable patients in either Oregon or the Netherlands is substantiated by the evidence obtained through the in-depth research of a team of highly respected professionals reported by Batten and others in the Journal of Medical Ethics in 2007. Their conclusion in relation to the predictions by opponents of assisted dying of inevitable and widespread abuse of people in vulnerable groups was, and I quote, where assisted dying is already legal, there's not current evidence that legal patient-assisted suicide or euthanasia will have disproportionate impact on patients in vulnerable groups. In Oregon, the annual reports of the Oregon Health Division the latest of which is in 2008 also confirm no abuse. There is one area, however, where the detailed provisions of the law in Oregon have not been have probably not been followed, and is described in research by Professor Ganzini, who as it happens was one of the authors of the batten paper to which I've referred. Professor Ganzini found that in 2007 three of the patients in Oregon had been assisted to die had been diagnosed as clinically depressed. Although she also found that there was no evidence to suggest that depression affected their competence. However, what this research did underline was the importance of psychiatric referral where there is any doubt about the presence or relevance of mental illness. And we are determined to live and learn from this and ensure that any risk of this type is effectively covered in our proposed future legislation. Once assisted dying has not led to any credible evidence of abuse of vulnerable people in other countries or regions where it is lawful, it is difficult to follow why, with even more stringent safeguards, it should be different here. Concern two is the slippery slope. It's raised as a serious concern on the basis that once once, uh, one legalizes The uh, assisted dying, people all over the place will take advantage of it and it will lead to a large number of deaths and eventually will be extended to voluntary euthanasia. But here too, fears of a vast increase in the numbers opting for assisted dying are not supported by the evidence in Oregon. Only 60 out of approximately 30,000 deaths in 2008 were assisted dying deaths according to the latest report of the Oregon Health Division. This constitutes only 0.2% of all deaths. And over the 10 years that assisted dying has been lawful in Oregon, the annual number of such deaths has stabilized at between 40 to 60 deaths. In the Netherlands also, there's been no sudden surge in numbers since statutory decriminalization of voluntary euthanasia and assisted dying the latest research shows that the incidence has fallen from 3,800 deaths in 2001 to 2,300 in 2008, although some of this fall may be attributable to an increase in terminal sedation. Despite this evidence, some of the opponents of assisted dying in this country predict a slippery slope which they are absolutely confident will happen here. But as I mentioned earlier, they produce no evidence or basis to explain why it should be different here, and blithely but astonishingly disregard the research of acknowledged experts. And the government produced statistics in Oregon and the Netherlands. And I'm here to take uh, a bit of my life, mud, my voice-saving brandy. Professor Seal concluded in an article just published in Social Science and Medicine that in relation to the slippery slope argument that, and I quote, in relation to the slippery slope argument that permeates much of the debate when a sister dying is discussed, the results prov- provide little support for the view that the lives of vulnerable elderly people are being devalued so that the deaths of such people are unduly. Hasten, and that is referring to is the position in this country in in relation generally to the end of life, uh, end of life, uh, life uh, experience. The third concern was that palliative care will be undermined. In this regard, I would emphasize again that the supporters of assisted dying believe that quality palliative care is the preferred solution for the overwhelming majority of patients. We see a sister dying as complementary to, and not in any way in opposition to palliative care, and as I've said so many times and repeat, limited to the small number of patients, palliative care cannot help. As to palliative care being undermined by sister dying, the evidence in Oregon is that palliative care has flourished since the introduction of a sister dying. In Oregon in 2008, the number of patients who died who were enrolled in hospice care Increased from 50% in 2003 to 86% in 2007 and to 98% in 2008, according to the 2008 summary of Oregon's Health with Dignity Act. In addition, evidence to the 2005 Select Committee was that, and I quote, hospices in Oregon have probably doubled in the last five years, 15 years. But the opponents of assisted dying off confident. That the reverse will happen over here. Similarly, in both the Netherlands and Belgium, there has been a significant increase in the provision of palliative care since voluntary euthanasia was decriminalised. And as I say, I have a list of references of the research available. And then we get to legalise assisted dying would break down the trust between doctor and patient. And it's difficult to follow this particular concern because most patients are in favor of a sister dying and would hardly fail to trust their doctors who were doing what they wanted them to do. However, again the facts do not support the claim. In the Netherlands, the level of trust between doctors and patients was the highest in a 2005 survey of nine countries in Europe, including the UK. More specifically in the UK, a YouGov survey in 2004 found that 79% of respondents said that if assisted sister dying were legal they would trust their doctors the same amount or more. Moving on to the other concerns, I will deal with, try to deal with them more concisely. Firstly there's the sanctity and value of life. The Catholic Archbishop of Cardiff, the most reverend Peter Smith, tells us that the Church teaches that suicide is a grave sin and that we are stewards, not owners, of the life God has entrusted to us. It is accordingly not ours to dispose of. The proponents of assisted dying naturally respect the right of the members of all faith groups to express their views on the issue and to follow their beliefs. We do not seek to impose assisted dying on anyone. And when it becomes lawful, it will become just another end of life option which patients will be entitled to request, if that is what they wish. It certainly will not be an option which a doctor or anyone else can impose upon patients. And we question the right of the faith groups to seek to impose their beliefs on those who do not share those beliefs. In regard to sanctity of life, I would also draw attention to the already widely accepted exceptions, such as the right to kill enemy soldiers and civilians, during military operations and the right to kill in self-defense, and also to the decisions of the courts that, in some cases, the principle of personal autonomy trumps the principle of sanctity of life. I make clear it's only in some cases, not all. Then we get to the difficult question of mental capacity. Oh, oh yes, and assessment. This raises fundamental concerns because competence is a precondition for any legislation which is proposed. In many cases, it is clear to a doctor either that a patient is or is not mentally com- or is that a patient is or does not have mental capacity. But there are some cases where expert opinion is made, needed to make this distinction. It is for this reason that we have provided and will provide that where there is any doubt as to competency. The patient must be seen by a psychiatrist and that the psychiatric evidence, like all medical professional evidence, must be capable of withstanding legal scrutiny. Then we have a similar concern, the Hippocratic Oath. Concerns are frequently expressed that assisted dying breaches that oath and said with much sincerity and great concern. However, that oath represented the values and attitudes of ancient Greece that it valued the, represented the values and attitudes of the ancient Greece, seems to be overlooked. Although many of these values still prevail today, others do not reflect contemporary value. For example, the oath requires graduates to provide their teachers with money if they need it. it would be a great relief to many of them. So i over here that the teachers of medicine should teach without being paid, a bit of a shock to some of the teachers these days, and that doctors should not give women abortive medicines, none of which reflect medical practice today. Perhaps in recognition of this, a survey referred to in the British Medical Journal in 1994 revealed that of 27 UK clinical medical schools, just one required graduates to take their Hippocratic Oath, two read it out to graduates, 11 used other oaths, which did not refer to uh, helping anyone to die and 13, did not require graduates to take any oath at all and that was in 1994, I've not checked up whether there's any remaining medical schools at the moment which use this oath. And then we have the case of Dr Shipman, (coughs) frequently raised. Dr Shipman murdered many (coughs) of his patients by injecting them with excessive doses of opiates Opponents of assisted dying suggest that decriminalising assisted dying will encourage other doctors to do likewise. The legislation proposed would actually help to protect patients against any future doctor shipment, not least because any assisted death under the proposed legislation would require two signed requests by the patient, the direct involvement of at least two doctors and a palliative care specialist. It would need a conspiracy between two or more doctors and a palliative care specialist to murder the patient. It needs, of course, to be remembered that in any profession, there are occasionally criminals, and must also be remembered that Dr. Shipman murdered his patients under the law as it currently exists. (coughs) The ninth concern, it is only a small number who would take advantage of (coughs) a sister dying. And as I've said, based on the Oregon three-year average of 18 deaths per 10,000, about eight, about 900 patients will be likely to ask for and proceed with a sister dying. And of course, it could be more or it could be less. And relative to the 500,000 patients who die each year in England and Wales, 900 is a small number. But a caring society cannot just ignore the suffering of 900 of its citizens if this can be prevented. And additionally, a change in the law will relieve many people from the fear of the process of dying, through knowing that should their suffering at the end of their lives increase beyond their control, they will have another end-of-life option to end that suffering. As it happens, <coughs> some patients in Oregon who receive prescriptions enabling them to end their lives die before they lose control and need them. However, however we have heard evidence of patients when they qualify to receive a prescription feel a great burden lift from their shoulders, because they know they can resort to them, if necessary. And the next concern is, it discriminates against non-competent patients and people who are not terminally ill. Now, it is very strange that opponents who fiercely oppose assisted system dying should be concerned about some people being excluded from it. <laughs> but, and this smacks of desperately looking for reasons to oppose rather than genuine concern. And the reason why patients who are not mentally competent are excluded is that they are not capable of making an informed decision, which is a fundamental requirement of the principle of personal autonomy, which underpins assisted dying. And the reason behind our excluding in proposed legislation people suffering unbearably because of an illness or, condi- or condition, but who despite this are not terminally ill, is because medical science is advancing so rapidly that hopefully in time cures for their conditions may be found. And unlike terminally ill patients, they do have time. Additionally, society as a whole does not support their inclusion. I'm gravely concerned about these exclusions because they both involve continuing suffering of people. But until I can find An acceptable solution for which I will continue to search. I will not seek to include these in legislative proposals. And then we get to an area which a a concern which which is expressed by some disabled people. They are against assisted dying. Now, and their expressions of opposition attract great sympathy from the rest of the population because of their disabilities which naturally arouse compassion and a wish to avoid causing them any additional additional suffering. And it is the leaders of most of the disability organisations who oppose assisted dying, although I do sometimes wonder whether they subconsciously see opposition to it as an opportunity to attract support for their determined and justifiable battle to end discrimination against disabled people and to have the lives of disabled people valued and respected in the same way as other people's lives. And for the leaders to ask, to argue, that disabled people who have withstood a lifetime of discrimination and survived the trials of life magnified for them because of their disabilities should not be considered as equally able to make decisions at the end of their lives seems patronizing and directly in conflict with the principle of equality which the disability movement is seeking to achieve. However, proper respect for the genuine concerns of those disabled people who mistakenly fear assisted the dying despite all the safeguards could be met by the inclusion in future legislation of a provision which would be the mirror image of a living will, namely a registered opt-out, in which they'd record that they would never, in any circumstances, consent to assist the dying. And if on this question of the disabled, I could just repeat once more what I think I what I said at the beginning, that all the surveys show that the majority and the considerable majority of disabled people are in favour and want to be treated as equals on this issue. And then the next, and you'll be pleased to hear, penultimate uh, concern, is that some people will feel they have a duty to die. Now the purpose of the safeguards is to protect people who are directly or indirectly influenced by others to ask for a dying. Although patients will often be weak as a result of their illness, there are relatively few who lose the will to live they will not easily be persuaded or be able to mislead two doctors and a palliative care specialist as to the reasons why they wish to end their lives there is no evidence of this duty to die having been the only reason for asking for assisted dying in the countries where it is legal although in oregon some patients have included it as one of the uh, one of a number of reasons for asking for assistance to die the third annual Oregon Health Division report in 2001 noted that, and I quote, Oregon patients almost always discuss concern about being a burden in conjunction with losing autonomy. Sometimes a sister dying is also about not wanting to be a burden on their their carers, but that is linked with the sense of autonomy. And the final concern is the message the bull gives. Concern is expressed that the bull sends a message to disabled people that society does not value the lives of disabled people. While this should be so, I find difficult to follow because the bull does not mention disabled people and applies to all people. In my view, if the bull gives a message at all, it is one of care and compassion for the suffering of all patients who are dying. We now come to who is in favour and who is against voluntary euthanasia and assisted dying? The impression that those of you who have been follow- following the debate in the press and the media may, may have gained is that opinion in society is evenly divided over the issue of assisted dying. And certainly listening to the media, including the BBC which makes a point of giving equal time to the opponents and to the supporters, one would be justified in coming to this view. However, when one studies the expert public opinion surveys, a quite different picture emerges. The answer to the question of who supports assisted dying and voluntary euthanasia is that an order of 80% in, of society are in favour of, of voluntary euthanasia and 60% in favour of assisted dying according to the British Social Attitude Survey in 2005. And that particular sur- British Social Attitude Survey is the most highly regarded survey in this country, generally, in all its, in all the issues which it surveys. Um, the last uh, survey of which I'm aware, a um, proper survey of which I'm aware, is the Populist Survey, published in the Times in July, which says, Seventy-four percent are in favour.
0: Uh,
1: and to repeat, uh, no, I've repeated enough things. The British Social Attitude surveys are support this. Are pro- provided the, the, the statistics of eighty percent support, sixty percent support for a sister dying, and only eighteen against. Now. The main opponents of assisted dying are firstly the safe groups, the faith groups, <coughs> then the doctors and particularly the palliative care doctors, and finally a relatively small number of the rest of society who, like those in favour, include distinguished lawyers, philosophers, scientists and other professionals, some of who are not influenced to opposed by their religious beliefs, beliefs, even if they had such beliefs. And what many, what particularly the lay people who oppose who oppose assisted dying, are get a, very indignant at the suggestion that the faith groups are the main opponents and actually are lead the attack on assisted dying. But again, they do not face up to the facts. For example. The Catholic Herald shortly before the debate on the 2006 Bill announced that the Catholic Church in England and Wales is planning to mount the biggest political campaign in its modern history in an attempt to stop assisted suicide from reaching the statute statute books. This weekend the bishops will flood their network of churches with half a million anti-euthanasia leaflets, campaign packs. And DVDs asking priests to help mobilize the faithful into action. And the Church of England newspaper wrote, again this was just before uh, my uh, assisted dying bill a few weeks before, and the Church of England paper read, and I quote, Church of England bishops have united with the Roman Catholic Church in launching a campaign to prevent the legalization of assisted suicide. But what the faith leaders overlook or that their views, with the possible exception of the Islamic community, are not shared by the majority of their laity. This was confirmed by the Archbishop of Canterbury's representative at the 2005 Select Committee, who while personally firmly opposing Assisted Dying, agreed that research was reliable, which showed that voluntary euthanasia was supported by 66% of the members of the Third Church of England who worship on a weekly basis and 84% of Christians of all denominations who worship once a month. Curiously, those who are influenced by their faith are often not willing to admit this. Instead, they tend to rely on other grounds of opposition, with the notable exception of one PRS who strongly opposes assisted dying, and said in the debate on the Select Committee report on 10, 10 October 2005, and I quote, I have been advised not to mention the Christian faith in this house. I regard that as almost unbelievable. And she went on very strongly to express her views. In the light of my experience, I have reluctantly concluded that there's no point in debating the issue of a sister dying with those who are strongly influenced by their faith. While philosophers, scientists, academics, law lords, doctors, and other professionals have differing and opposing views, The church leaders are rock solid in their opposition. 16 bishops, almost the full competent complement in the Lords, voted against the 2005 bill. While a letter dated the same day as Lord Carlisle's last minute cunning amendment to defeat the bill was addressed individually to every Catholic member of the House of Lords by the Archbishop of Cardiff, almost instructing them to turn up and vote against the bill. the Archbishop clearly assumed that all Catholic peers would automatically vote against the Bill even before they listened to the debate. In drawing attention to the opposition of faith leaders, I'm naturally not in any way suggesting that they have no right to campaign against the sister dying, nor that they do not have the same right as every member of society to express their views which should be treated with due respect. What I am suggesting... Is they should accept that their views are firmly influenced by their faith and that they are not open to objectively considering the case for assisted dying. This probably is why some of the distinguished opponents of the bill whose opposition is not grounded or influenced by faith resent the implication that the opposition to assisted dying is faith driven. The reason concerns and the faith concerns of the opponents are often supplemented by the manoeuvres of their more zealous supporters. The latest one being an attempt to skew the results of the poll set up on the University of Bath on your university's website intended to ascertain in advance the views of the numbers in favour and against assisted dying prior to my talk this evening. The Euthanasia Prevention Coalition issued what they call a poll alert to their supporters worldwide, reading, the, f- no, Kurt, the following article about Lord Joffey's free lecture includes a poll. Go to the following link, enter the poll and vote no. I, I was rather chuffed that they regarded my talk as worthy of such dedicated opposition. <laughs> but it was doubtless, in line with other appeals by Dr. Peter Saunders, the chair of the Care Not Killing Alliance UK and the director of the Christian Medical Fellowship aiming to skew the results of British polls with worldwide appeals to vote against the sister dying. It may interest you to know that Dr Saunders and his friends, his uh, fellow panelists, will be very pleased with the result of the worldwide poll in Bath, where 87 were against and 12 only in favour of a sister dying. And the votes came from 61 countries, including even Zimbabwe, although. Uh, although about three-quarters did come from UK supporters of the alliance who uh, obviously were canvassed as well and told to vote no. You may be sure that this great victory will be trumpeted by the alliance alliance, um, (coughs) against euthanasia as a response to the British Attitude Survey and other expert surveys to which I've made reference, in the same way as, it, as they did with its successful efforts earlier this year to similarly <coughs> skew the results of a London Evening Standard poll, with surprisingly, uh, having regard to the various uh, proper surveys, <coughs> uh, as the same sort of majority was suddenly against assisted dying. But resorting to dubious tactics and skewing pale results in order to mislead the public as to society's attitude to assisted dying accords with many other of the alliance's misrepresentation or the misrepresentations by the zealots opposing assisted dying. I come now to the doctors and nurses who are the next group uh, who are the next group opposed. Oh i forgot to move that uh, sound, <coughs> yeah, sorry, you have to rely on what I told you rather than looking at the that particular slide And yeah. <coughs> uh, well we're not quite there oh now've i got to the re- we'll come my. The technician will rescue me over here when we get to my last, what was intended to be my last slide. I deal now with the second main, a op- lot of opponents doctors and nurses. Um, the majority of doctors, although they are a significant minority, are in favour, are against a change in the law. I can understand why doctors' initial instinctive reaction to assisted dying is to oppose it. The reason they entered the medical profession would normally have been because they cared about people, wanted to cure them or prevent them from falling ill, and in the case of patients terminally ill, to ease their suffering in the dying process. However, if after their initial instinctively, instinctively negative reaction, individual doctors were objectively to consider and analyse the case for a sister dying and reflect on the views of the majority of their patients as well as the lack of actual evidence against assisted dying, I think some might reach a different conclusion. My views in this regard are fortified by the experience of Professor Raymond Tallis, a distinguished geriatrician who was chair of the ethics committee of the Royal College of Physicians. He explained in an article in Clinical Medicine in 2004 that the first time round he was opposed to my first bill, basing his opposition on beliefs that he had not taken the trouble to check When he did what he referred to as a reality check, he discovered that every single one of those assumptions had proved to be false and changed his views from opposition to support of assisted dying. We who support assisted dying do recognize the unease that many doctors feel about being asked to play a key role in assisted dying. With this in mind, we're exploring how, when we introduce a new bill, we can take doctors out of the process. What we have in mind is that the investigative and decision-making process might become the role of a legal body such as the Court of Protection, leaving doctors only with their customary health examinations and prognosis role. It is particularly relevant that earlier this year, the Royal College of Nursing, after very thorough consultation with their members, moved from a position of opposition to assisted dying to one of neutrality. Views within the college were divided, although a small majority of those who wrote were in in favor. However, the college apparently felt that as it represented both those who supported us dying, as well as those against, that they should adopt a position of neutrality, a position which I think is fair. The significance of this stance is that nurses are by far the largest group of health professionals and have much greater exposure as a whole to dying people than doctors and other professionals. They deal with patients on a day-to-day basis and are in constant touch with the suffering that some patients experience. Throughout the debate over the years since I introduced my first bill, I've sought rational debate on this important issue. I've modified my (coughs) views and bills in the light of what seem to me important and legitimate issues of concern but with a handful of exceptions, I have not found a willingness by most patients to even listen and objectively consider the case for a sister dying, let alone to take a neutral stance. The attitude of opponents has generally, but not always, been that they know it is harmful, usually based on little more than their personal opinions and prejudices and the opinion that once they know this, there is nothing to discuss. So to round up, the case for assisted dying, I draw attention to the one, unanimous, the one unanimous finding of the 2005 Select Committee, and that was, and I quote, that while the most careful account must be taken of expert evidence at the end of the day, the acceptability of assisted suicide or voluntary euthanasia is an, an issue for society to decide through its legislators in Parliament, Society has spoken and made its view clear. I hope as we live in a democracy that the legislators in Parliament will listen, but so far they have failed to do that. And now I will end with a quick run-through, a summary of the case for a sister dying, because I realise that in such a long talk it would be very easy to lose the thread of my case. Palliative care as I say, the whole basis of our case is palliative care is not the solution for a small but significant number of patients who suffer unbearable deaths, but the safeguards will protect vulnerable members of society. The concerns raised do not stand up to a critical examination. The number of patients who lawfully ask for assisted dying will be roughly equal <coughs> to those who are present are unlawfully assisted to die. And the concerns raised by opponents of the assisted dying are driven by a small minority of the population, largely influenced by their faith and based on conjecture, which ignores the positive evidence of countries where it is lawful. And the experts' survey show 80% in favour, 80% 80, 80, 80 against. Now, assisted dying, when I've asked die, opponents of assisted dying what solution they propose for patients for whom palliative care is not the solution, they are unable to provide an answer. As a caring society, I believe we must find a solution to the unbearable sufferings of patients whose needs cannot be met by palliative care. Assisted dying seems to me to be the only solution in the absence of any other. If there is a better solution, I would like to learn a bit. Thank you.